Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. And if you haven't visit the website you need to go there vetgurus.com and poke around have a look at some of the previous episodes if you have not watched the over 200 episodes or listen to them you need to and you can there's a really good search function there as well where you can type in wildlife or dogs reptiles whatever and away you go um, and it will pick up the episodes that have those links in there and those topics in there how are you mark i'm great brendan really really good i've i am um, i was mentioning to you before we started recording that um that i'm just having a cup of hot change <laughs> recycled re-looped um i'm having a, a cup of hot chocolate I'm, I'm usually a caffeine fiend i usually have coffee first thing in the morning and several times through the day and then last thing before i go to bed and I've come to the realisation it may be screwing up my sleep, so I'm having a hot chocolate after the excitement of talking to you. Ah, the milk and hot chocolate to put you to sleep, yes, yes. Um, There's something soothing about a cup of hot chocolate, isn't there, Mark? Um, Yes, it does have um, a calming effect, doesn't it? But I want the, um, hopefully, hopefully it's got a decent sugar content in there because we want to make this nice and punchy sugar and so caffeine in the chocolate punchy. Three, three and caffeine in the in the chocolate yes yes that might defeat the purpose of what you're trying to use it for yes um um i'll tell you what mate that it's so much pressure on the students these days isn't there um and i i, I sit back every now and again and contemplate as you know i do and i think that um, i feel sorry for them in, in um some respects the pressures on them to do well and to study well and um because of that um perhaps it's just me but the the lack of um sometimes a bit of a lack of sense of humor and and um, brevity and levity not brevity levity um <laughs> in them um because i remember back to when i was at at, at uni and some of the pranks we used to get up to mark i don't know if they <laughs> did the same at your uni but i um um, I remember when we're getting towards the end of the university year when I had about two years to go in the degree and um, we had a particularly boring, um, well, there, were some of, there was a fair few of them who were boring, our lecturers, I must admit. <laughs> and um, so everybody get a bit antsy and um, those that weren't asleep in the lecture theatre. Um, and this particular lecture was it was talking a bit. It was a bit ahead of his time, actually. He was talking about one health mark in those days um, that we all bang on about. Um, so infections and, and and pandemics and things like that. It was sort of a um, before his time. About, yeah, he was talking about epidemiology and and all sorts of stuff. Um, but it was a little bit hard of hearing, but also hard of sight or poor of sight, Mark. So. Um, and people, <laughs> the students like to play little pranks and tricks on him. And 
I don't know how it got there, but um, during one of our lectures, there happened to be a mannequin appear, um, a store <laughs> mannequin um, appeared in the back row of our lecture theatre, um, and she was dressed up in a football jumper, as, they, as you would, and um, when the when he opened up to questions to the people, um, her hand shot up, <laughs> and and, and um, she was asking questions during this particular lecture there. And uh, I think for the first couple of questions, he, he twigged not not long <laughs> after that. But for, for the first couple of um, questions, he he said, "Yes, young young lady at the back, <laughs> what is your question there on epidemiology?" So yeah, but those guys they, days are gone, Mark. I don't sort of see that sort of thing happening these days, and I I sort of think it's a, a little bit sad that um, we can't sort of enjoy a bit of a laugh and a bit of a bonding experience there. And I think the pressure's on the lecturers as well. You know, And as you know, I do the occasional um, teaching gig myself and, um, you know, everything's recorded these days, you know, um, not just the audio but the video as well. So you're a little bit reluctant to to tell those silly dad jokes or, or, or inappropriate um, um, comments there and you're always on your guard with it. So it, I think it makes things a lot more more sterile than it than it used to be and you can't you know you're less likely to do the the anecdotal type stories that you would um otherwise yeah so do you find it a little bit depressing do you think that um because i uh um you and i are of a certain age where our careers have spanned um social change and what was acceptable when we were at university um, a lot of a lot of what well, yes, acceptable may be the wrong word, but was done and uh, laughed at um, would not be acceptable in this day and age. Do you think that um, students at the moment, as they grow and mature, that they will they'll be it'll be easier for them to adapt? Because I I, I know what you're saying that. Um, when you are put in a position of um, seniority or authority or um, leading a class or a, a mentoring group, you, as a senior veterinarian, you you do, I find, um, have to be very careful and watch what you say. And, um, and it doesn't, uh, you know, it's, I, I would be lying if I didn't say every once in a while a joke pops into my head which I very quickly slash Dismiss. and burn and destroy yes. before it jumps out. Um, and maybe um, vets of a younger generation won't have those those problems. They'll they'll have acceptable jokes. But I, I take your point. Um, I do think yeah. that um, that high. Uh, the the relatively high frequency of of uh, tension relieving levity, um, I, I it was a highlight of my undergraduate career, and um, uh, unlike the marks I got, um, and, uh, and and as a consequence, um, I think those that don't have um, a significant amount of that, a don't enjoy it as much, and b um, don't get as much relief of the tension that's associated with intense study. Yes, um, yeah. Perhaps our 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 humour is um, gone out of um, fashion, Mark. We're, we're old codgers with. Um, There's no doubt with, about that. With, um, <laughs> um, yeah, 
I don't know, Mark. These are the sorts of things that keep me pondering. Mm. These sorts of things they keep me pondering. So there you go. That's my that's my little um, monologue um, for this episode, Mark. Um, let's jump into some news stories. Um, Just before wanna... we do, I've got one more question about your monologue. Yes, um, I like it because um, this is is one of my favourite talking points, I suppose, about um, about the difference between humour that is um, acceptable and humour that is um, that might be considered bullying. Um, I think that it, your example, and I chortled along with it, is a good example of punching up, if that makes sense, that you're not um, making fun of a, um, a, a weakened... Um, economically deprived, minority, poor person. You're not punching down socially. The professors have to like man up, uh, man up, person up, um, and um, and and uh, sometimes be the butt of a joke. I reckon. Yes. Well, that's what I thought at the time <laughs> until I um, until he um, ripped into me during my oral examination, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we won't go there. Um, I'll tell you another story about my exams another time. <laughs> and, and another um, another um, little event that went horribly wrong. <laughs> so yes, so um, actually, I had the, um, the in our agenda. You are taking the mosquitoes um, news story, yes. Mark. I'll take the other one. So, do you want to open with that one? The um, mosquitoes, indeed, I do. Um, it's a little bit of an like an exciting one, I reckon. Um, uh, it, as in previous episodes, I've I've often um, be, belaboured the point that we should not be releasing organisms rare, willy willy nilly into the environment. Um, that uh, invasive species are the direct result. But this one, I think I'm on board with. After long debate, Ox, the company Oxytech. Uh, has a genetically modified mosquito which it intends to pit against um, the invasive species, particularly in Florida, that's spreading Zika virus and dengue fever. So um, what the biotech company has done is take genetically modified mosquitoes of the species Aedes aegypti um, and they... um, genetically modify them, plant them out in hexagonal toaster-sized boxes in, on suburban private properties, um, and then they the males um, start to um, grow up in the little soup and uh, mature, then fly off after they pupate, um, and then they court the free-living um, females. Um, but these males uh, will end up um, not... Uh, producing um, viable young. So um, the, the key thing here, uh, now I've lost myself in this story, um, the, the mosquitoes wave a distinctly masculine, as in extra fluffy, antenna um, in Florida, and those ones carry genetic adults that block the development in females. So no female larvae should survive to adulthood in the wild, says the molecular biologist from the biotech team. 
So half the released male sons, however, will carry their dad's daughter killing trait. So there are actual um, mosquitoes that are the result of these mosquitoes breeding, but the male mosquitoes don't bite. So it's only the females that bite and transmit disease. So this, well, it could well be um, an excellent example of very specific genetic modification um, that actually allows um, a um, biocontrol um, from a naturally released organism. What's your thoughts on this, Brendan? Well, a couple of things, Mark. I mean, this is, it was, it was, this experiment was done, or they're released in Florida, weren't they? Florida Keys. And yeah, yeah. Now, my, um, I'll, we'll probably get a few emails on this, but our US friends um, often have said to me um, that's where people go to die in America, don't they? And retire <laughs> in Florida. So, is it a good spot to release these um, mozzies if people are going down there to retire anyway? Having said that, it looks like 70 cases of dengue fever were reported in um, 2020 locally in that region. So obviously that's why they've decided to release them there, yes. So, yes, that was my poor attempt at a joke, I didn't realise. Um, I think it's a good idea. Um, I just worry about the di- sort of the dilution effect, I suppose, with generation to generation, um, you know, but they've only just started, haven't they? So we don't – when it's going to – it's – um. Wait, I'm just trying to see when they released the first light. It was sort of in April 2020 or something, I yeah, think, by the look yeah, of it. that's right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think biological control, yes, if it works, it's going to be good. But um, I just worry that it's going to be slowly, slowly um, less effective over time um, with it, with the process. But it's quite a clever method um that they've worked out for this and gee these insect-borne diseases mark there are there are um and we've done a fair few stories over the over the podcasts about um some of the um insect-borne diseases and the havoc they wreak not just in humans but animals as well um yeah so so i'm a bit like you in that i think um the the numbers game I think uh, I read somewhere in this article that there were um, twelve, up to twelve thousand genetically modified mosquitoes across, uh, in total, across the release sites. Yeah. Um, we'll take to the air each week for twelve weeks. Um, I don't know that. That just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of. And I know those mosquitoes will breed and produce other males that um, that limit the production of females, but. Um, yeah, I just don't know that it's – it'll be very interesting to see the results, I reckon. Yes. Yeah. One we will um, have to follow. Yes. And I think they, their summary was they represent – the released ones represented 4% of the combined populations of the mosquitoes around that region, yeah. So, yes, we all have to revisit this topic at some stage, Mark. Um, my one's a, a quick one, and, oh, gee, I like your opinion on this one, Mark. And the title of the story is Giraffe Grandmothers are High-Value Family Members. Um, and the gist of this story is um, that there's not many species, supposedly, of where female adults that continue to live long lives even after their childbearing 
careers have finished, Mark, and they studied um, family of giraffes and they worked out that up to um, – and female giraffes, giraffes live for about eight years after they can no longer reproduce, according to this study, which is about 30% of their lives. And the other species that they've known that are quite well known for having older matriarchs, um, which look after the group, uh, elephants, and I think they also spoke about um, killer whales, orcas as well, Mark. Um, so the article was just saying that these elderly or older um, giraffes um, are high-value members and they teach the youngsters um, what to do, and it is a bit unusual or and or rare in the animal world, Mark. Um, and I think you commented something about the human-animal world and, and, and um, elderly um elderly parents um we might be the opposite in the human um world in that we tend to just um bundle all our elderly um parents and grandparents um into um retirement villages or homes don't we um rather than having that and that's something i've really um i've really admired about um you know my wife's um um mediterranean background is yeah um her, her mum's um italian and that i really admire that whole um family unit process that they have going on there where we go over to the big not at the, not when we have um, um endemic lockdowns and that um the big family do's mark where, where you have multiple generations and and uh the, the parents and the grandparents are certainly looked after and they try and keep them um, looked after in the family home and, and or being visited by the grandchildren, etc. Um, and trying to avoid at all costs, try um, them ending up in, in nursing homes, etc. Um, so, that, you know, really tight family units and I've really admired that sort of thing with those cultures that do that. Um, comes as a nice to... Go on, you go first. Sorry, yeah, as opposed to you know the 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 the, the people that you know as, as soon as they get a chance they they put the parents in the in the nursing home and, and visit them once every every infrequent time period. Yeah, I um I do like the thought that um that there are more than just you know the the typical whales and elephants and humans I, it doesn't surprise me that uh social herding mammal like uh giraffes um have developed you know to grow an animal that size is a big investment and um the things that they can learn about predators and uh food resources uh um, not necessarily automatically passed on genetically, and so um, yeah. So I I I like the idea that um, that there is a another species in which um, intelligent group living mammals have evolved a highly successful and complex society, and part of that uh, success is predicated on the on the um, wisdom of uh, the matriarchs. Here, here. Perfect summary there, Mark. Perfect summary. Um, let's jump into our main topic because I don't think I have a segue <laughs> from. Um, well, they giraffes. are social lizards, aren't they? They and ah, um, yes, you can have it. You can, you can, yes, you can chat a little bit about that. Social Perfect. lizards. Yes. They, um, so our main topic is respiratory disease or diseases, um, respiratory signs 
in Shingleback Lizards, Mark, and, and um, Taliqui Rugosa. And for those listeners non-native to Australia, um, Shingleback Lizards are known by well, lots of different names, aren't they, Mark? Bobtail Lizards, Sleepy Lizards, Two-Headed Skink, Stumpy Tail, Skimp, Pinecone Lizard. Um, Bob Eye is one that I, I've <laughs> never really heard anybody um, report, but um, um, and there's even a, a few native Australian um, names for it as well. So, but we tend to, you and I both tend to call them the shingleback lizard, don't we, Mark? Is that correct? That's the most common name we use, yeah. Yeah, um, and and they're they're in the wild. They um, mate for life. Um, they uh, um, they tend to. Even if um, they're physically separated by a short distance, they tend to maintain pheromonic contact. And uh, once they pair up, they um, they hang on to each other for, well, as long as both of them are still alive, which is a, yeah. a nice thing to know about reptiles. Yes, yes. And um, this has been, and that's based on, I think there was one classic study, wasn't there, that went over... Almost ten years, I was wasn't it, where they tracked the the lizards in South Australia, I think, if that's correct, Mark, um, and um, saw that they were coming back to the husband and wife or the family unit were coming back every every. They did separate, I think, didn't they, for several months um, yeah. at a time once um, every year, and then they come back for sort of nine months or something like that. Um, can remember the summary of the paper but yeah um, it was really quite interesting but we're talking about respiratory diseases in these lizards mark and it's a great one because um as we we're chatting off air before we started recording um both you and i have seen well wheezing, <laughs> sneezing um shingleback lizards um since we graduated and um the way we would um approach these cases um and especially with the differential diagnostic um, list has certainly changed over the years, hasn't it? Indeed. When we first came out uh, of university, um, it was, you know, my understanding that it's interesting because in Australia, they don't occur um, along the East Coast where we've got that uh, humid, where most people live. It's, um, it's a humid coastal region and we don't get those lizards there. It's only sort of west of the Great Dividing Range out in the country, in the outback um, that they really uh, thrive. And it's always been, I'd made a little bit of a um, interpretation, Brendan, that um, that because they like that drier outback country, that, um, that they wouldn't cope with the humidity of the coast. And I'd often advise in my early days um, that their husbandry required... Um, uh, the maintenance of a much lower humidity than the natural humidity in in uh, outside in our um, in our uh, the places that we live in eastern Australia. So um, we often saw these animals get respiratory disease, and I routinely attributed it to uh, poor husbandry that they were exposed to humidities that were too high, and I still think. Um, of the cases that I see now, that that is a um, a, a factor, um, but Brendan hasn't our understanding of their respiratory disease changed and developed over the many many years that we've been um, veterinarians? Absolutely, and 
it's mainly because of smart people, um, unlike us, <laughs> who have uh, discovered some of the um, obvious, um, some of the organisms that are causing the, the, these um, respiratory signs in them. But yes, you're always, you've hit the nail on the head there too, mate. We always think husbandry, don't we, regardless of <laughs> um, not just reptiles, but all the unusual pets. We always have that in the front of our mind as well as the back of our mind for, for a potential um, component of um, disease processes in these animals. So yeah, let's jump into it, Mark. Um, what are the signs? What do we commonly see um, classically with these respiratory um, syndromes or diseases in these shingleback lizards? Well, they remind me of cats that have cat flu, Brendan. They have um, often a serous, maybe a mucoparillant nasal discharge. They often have an ocular discharge of a similar nature. Um, they may well develop some nasal obstruction due to the exudate and the um, parlant material building up in the nasal cavity and so may often open mouth breathe. Um, and they, you know, often... I suspect because their taste changes, um, maybe because they feel a bit crap as well, they um, go off their food. So uh, a lizard that's um, thinning, that um, has evidence of ocular and nasal discharge, probably is the most common sort of presentation that we see. Yes, and it can be both. It can be acute or chronic, and certainly the chronic ones I've seen plenty of them with 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 the clients. And that my my stumpy tail's been sneezing and and has a grotty snotty nose, um, and it's been going on for for days or weeks or potentially months, um, and it seems reasonably alert and active otherwise. Um, and um, then they finally decide to bring it into the clinic. Um, do, um, a question for you, Mark: Do you see many of these that are a real, a per acute sort of cases where they that they seem fine and then they fall in an absolute heap with this um, the, this um, respiratory um, syndrome or signs um, and and end up um, not surviving? Or we not? do. We see we see a mix. Um, yep. Definitely see a mix, and there are. Um, some the, probably the majority I make an off the cuff estimate of about two thirds of them are, are of a more chronic nature that we'll see them for a little bit of a problem this year and um, and then see them for more of a problem next year. Um, but we do see maybe twenty or thirty percent of them are as you describe per acute. They're they're otherwise healthy lizards um and uh they just um crash and uh and it does there doesn't seem to be like the the peracute ones definitely seem to be uh a greater proportion of the ones that don't survive um the the more chronic ones once we get serious about treating them and working their husbandry out um we tend to get uh, further along with those guys Yes. So speaking of treating them, Mark, before we do that, we try and do a bit of a workup on them. So what, what's your standard sort of process for the workup on these, bearing in mind the potential um, causes, which we'll, we'll also cover? Um, well, we, um, we take some samples. Um, we take samples of the uh, discharge. We try and take samples from deep in the oropharynx. Um, we like to have a look at the 
um, the samples of discharge from the eyes. I have had uh, a, a conjunctival protozoal infection uh, trigger off these sorts of problems in shinglebacks. So we want to make uh, uh, get a fair few samples and have a look at them. I also like to um, to get uh, um, you know the the usual initial database. A blood sample is always a good thing to get. And if I've got a profoundly anemic lizard um, with depleted white cells, then that does alert me to um, you know the more serious life-threatening nature of one of the potential causes and what that might be mark <laughs> um well the, it, i'm fascinated by this because of that like history over a career thing that um uh we never had um uh you know we we thought that they may uh, there may be a um mycoplasma or um maybe a a particular gram negative bug and we've uh, uncovered those in individual cases but the one that uh, is probably most important to us now and probably acts as a little bit of a, a gateway infection that allows those other ones to take off um, is uh, shingleback nidovirus um, uh, that's been sort of uh, narrowed down by the work at uh, Kenyana Wildlife Hospital in Western Australia and um, and a number of virologists. I think uh, Mark O'Day um, uh, probably led a team um, of virologists who um, only in the last sort of five or six years finally put the pieces together and identified a nidovirus um, as the cause of respiratory disease in um, in many wild and captive shinglebacks, particularly in Western Australia. Yes, and as old fogies, we didn't have the option of considering um, that it potentially may have been something like this, and we certainly didn't have any way of testing for it, did we, Mark? So, um, what is the test? What's the process for identifying this as a potential cause for respiratory disease in this species <laughs> the test yes you're asking me what test the um the there's uh um i believe um murdoch university has um uh, yes. a diagnostic service um that uh, uh you know a, PCR. An aseptic yep. technique uh, collected as an aseptic sample collected and uh, sent for PCR um, will give you a, um, a definitive answer as to whether the virus is present or not. Yes. So we can send it off for a PCR test. So, I mean, what's your approach to the client who doesn't want to do diagnostics? You typically from uh, after I cost. punched them hard in the face, <laughs> a, a cost concern. <laughs> so they have their and it may, let's say it's one of these chronic cases of my my shingle back has a it's got a grotty discharge from the nose and or eyes, um, and it's a little bit out of sorts, and it has been for several weeks, if not months. Um, and they bring it into you to get fixed, Doctor Mark, because you're the man, and. They don't want to spend any more money than, um, and they 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 just want you to put it on some antibiotics. Of course, um, what's your approach to that? Well, I think the the key thing to say there, Brendan, is that um, the first decision has to be made about the animal's welfare, and I think. Um, I would. We've mentioned this about a number of diseases that um, that uh, there are going to be some of these lizards if people can't afford a proper workup there's going to be some of them that are going badly enough that um 
that we need to consider humane euthanasia, and that's not a bad choice. Um, if the animal is not suffering at that level, then then I do think it's reasonable to take a um, a, uh, um, a fairly aggressive, uh, um, uh, supportive treatment uh, protocol. I I don't think I thought you were going to say a fairly aggressive punch in the face <laughs> to the client. <laughs> Well, I know that they make us feel like that, don't they? Um, of course, you or I would never do that. Uh, not least, uh, not least, uh, the reason for that would be that um, we're much likely to get punched much harder back um, than either of us could ever deliver. But um, the key thing I think in treating these guys is um, t to you know do the usual reptile stuff. Make sure you have. Um, the uh, animal appropriately warm. Make sure that um, it's well hydrated because it's very difficult to assess. These lizards are like tanks and it can be very difficult to um, assess their hydration status. But you can assume that, uh, that these guys are very dehydrated routinely. Nebulizing them. I, th this is a uh, an important point, I think, that um, while you've got a healthy lizard, they need low humidity. But once they have respiratory disease and mucus builds up in those areas in the their lungs, um, they need uh, um, tiny droplets of moisture to go in there and prevent the mucus in their lungs from setting into a pronaceous concrete. Um, so um, nebulizing them is definitely a good thing to do. Obviously remove any, um, you know, secondary diseases, parasites, um, treat them, you know, examine their stools, treat them for likely parasite problems. Um, it's, uh, I'm, you know, we, we regularly uh, talk about antibiotic therapy and how we want to be great custodians of um of uh, of the antibiotics we have and make sure we use them well. Um, the the current accepted um, I suppose pr treatment protocol would be to consider treating these lizards with enrofloxacin and uh, metronidazole concurrently. Um, and but really that uh, should be a decision that's made on a case by case basis, and it should be made in such a way that um, you know you you you're making some assessment about um, whether it's likely that there is a, a compounding uh, superinfection um, superimposed on the viral disease. And if there's not, then obviously withhold those antibiotics. Yes. Um, so they're, they're off. Yeah, so exactly like we say with surprisingly enough, other conditions we're, wor we're worried about this animal that's debilitated then the immune system is compromised so we end up with secondary invasive organisms there so part of the trying to keep that animal alive and um, recover from the bobtail flu um, as it's as it's called um, that nidovirus is um, supportive care and and, and um, fluids nebulization most definitely and, and um, covering them with antibacterial agents as well for them, Mark. Um, not that they're, they're all, certainly not all the um, nidovirus, are they, Mark? Uh, no, that's so definitely the, the, the and, and that's an important thing we need to stress in that it may be a, a primary um, 
bacterial um, infection with it. Um, and we can certainly have, you know, it's not out of the question that we might have some of the other potential causes um, related to husbandry, like we mentioned at the start of this podcast, Mark, but even things like um, allergy reactions and... Um, Dusty thumb strains. Yes, the class. Oh, well, the classic one there is, you know, people keep in that the, their reptiles not um, in inside in their homes and then it's during a really particularly cold winter for instance here in melbourne and they um, have the ducted heating on and all the um, dust and the um, allergens from the um, um, ducted heating um, goes throughout the house including um, into the reptile enclosures so that has an influence on it as well so make sure you get a good history that's yes, um, history 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 um what about prevention, Mark? How, do, how is this? Um, how are these diseases spread? How, how do we think this nidovirus, this shingleback nidovirus, is spread? Well, my understanding is that it's um, it's uh, rich in the exudate, and so um, animals come into contact with other animals that are infected. It's a close contact thing. So um, prevention is all about quarantine, and geez. That's a, I, I, it's a hard thing to convince uh, many reptile owners um, that, uh, that they need to go through uh, periods of quarantine. But this is one um, that I would say, uh, without a doubt, I'd be keeping any animal um, separate from the others, practicing barrier nursing um, until I was confident, till I'd had it tested or I was confident it didn't have... Um, you know, any any particular problem. Um, and, you know, the difficult thing in answering the next question is how long do you keep them um, uh, in quarantine? I don't think that, uh, I don't think science has established that yet. We routinely recommend that, um, you know, that several months, six months at least for um, uh, shinglebacks, but um, I don't know that that's based in any particular science at all, just... Uh, uh, our our initial caution. Yes, and <clears throat> I think the difficulty is too that not just reptile owners, but a lot of keepers of of various animals. Um, if there's a spare enclosure, they fill it up um, with another animal, don't they? So um, they all, always start with the good intention of having one or more quarantine enclosures, but um, it's just too tempting to add another animal into that enclosure, isn't it, Mark? So so. Um, providing decent or any um, quarantine with some of these um, collections can be can be problematic to say the least can't it um, with them so yes so prevention is and and you know we we just don't know don't we it is the answer to a lot of these things with them but um, you know how long is it um, how long is it transmissible um, for um, how easy is it to disinfect and I, I presume you'd be recommending um, cleaning out these enclosures and and um, those tr treating those quarantine enclosures with um, product like F10, for instance, would that be correct? Of course, <laughs> one of our um, sponsor, but I'd, I'd certainly be recommending it, um, not just because they're a good supporter of the um, podcast, Mark. Um, so, well, what's have you got a little throwaway line or a summary, Mark, for um, respiratory disease in these shingleback lizards that um, you'd like um, our listeners to remember? 
Well, I think the 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 main one for me is to make sure that um, that they uh, our listeners are aware that um, they can do those diagnostics. Um, make sure they speak to their shingleback blizzard owners about uh, quarantine, um, and um, and geez, I think it's a also a very useful thing to encourage those uh, annual exams, uh, annual examinations, uh, because. Oftentimes, we've spotted uh, the earliest signs of this in those annual exams before you know it becomes a full-blown problem. So, so I'd be encouraging those three things: regular health checks, as usual, Mark. Um, concentrating on the husbandry, getting all of that right. Um, good disinfection and quarantine procedures, and um, diagnostic vet. testing. Yes, diagnostic testing, senior vet regularly. We sound like broken records. Excellent. With that, Mr. Atros, come in and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening.